Hello, we're Scott and Maureen Proctor, and welcome to Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast, where today we're going to study 1 Kings chapters 17 through 19. And I have to say, this is one of my favorite events to look at in the Old Testament because it is so central to understanding what's going on in the Old Testament. We're going to see Elijah, and we have a special guest to be with us today. Yes, we're thrilled to have Patrick Dane with us today. He's been an instructor in the Seminaries and Institute program for more than 25 years. He's traveled and taught in the Holy Land. Of course, he loves the people in the Holy Land and their culture. He holds degrees in classical history and Latin and military history, specializing in ancient Greek and Roman warfare. And we first met Patrick at BYU Education Week and uh, we are so thrilled to be here today with him as we talk about this particular section of the Old Testament. So to get started with this part of the Old Testament, we need to get some background on what is happening here during Elijah's time. And Patrick, maybe you can help us with that. We have Ahab the king and Jezebel, who is his Venetian princess, and something has really changed in the land. Yeah, and thank you for allowing me to be here. I mean, with you, Maureen, I think this is just an incredible story. I mean, Elijah is not someone who, uh, really, to quote Paul, who was uh, hatched in a corner somewhere. I mean, he comes on with uh, uh, with just power. You have uh, this uh, dynasty that is that is mutated and uh, syncretistic theology, which is the blending of two different systems of of uh, paganism and Baal worship uh, uh, with, with Yahwistic worship or, or the worship of Jehovah. And, and that's not like oil and water, that's more like formaldehyde and gold. I mean, it's just, just simply do, just does not work. Uh, you can see this with uh, Jezebel's influence over Ahab uh, very specifically where, where this Phoenician princess, as you say, and this uh, descendant, this daughter of, of the worship of Baal, uh, Baal is just an interesting uh, character. Uh, he's known as like the rider of the clouds and uh, known as the lightning and the dew uh, uh, as his wives and his daughters. And, and uh, the Lord had, had warned very specifically in Deuteronomy 7 that if you, uh, if you marry outside the covenant, they, they will turn your hearts to worshiping other gods. And I think Jezebel and Ahab are a good example of that. And so you have this blending of the worship of Yahweh or Jehovah coming in in form and, and mandated through uh, these these rulers of Ahab and Jezebel and it's and it's not going to bode well so when Elijah comes on the scene boy he comes on as a flaming fire truly well and Jezebel really enforces the worship of Baal I mean, she actually cuts off kills many of the priests of Yahweh and there is a sense that all the power here in the kingdom this is the northern kingdom now is behind this worship of Baal. And the people seem to be torn. They don't know where they fall. And, and in part, we know that Elijah seals the heavens and brings upon a famine because um, the people are forgetting God. And there must have been some appeal to, to Baal because he seemed to be the god of storm and weather and this kind of thing. So maybe they thought they were hedging up their bets by worshiping Baal and worshiping Jehovah a little bit at the same time. We'll mix, we'll mix it here. Yeah, in fact, when you say it that, that way, that's exactly right. Where, in fact, uh, 
just you saying that reminds me of James's uh, warning in James uh, chapter one, where he says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Uh, exhibit A for that would be Ahab, right? And uh, yeah, he is unstable in all his ways. And by extension, the house of Israel. And as you look at Elijah or Eliyahu in, in Hebrew, Jehovah is my God. My God is Jehovah. Uh, just in the name itself, you'll find this power that Elijah's asserting that, that the God of Israel truly is Jehovah. And make no mistake about this. There is a black and then there, there is a white here in terms of who we ought to be worshiping. And it's just stark. Uh, it is not subtle. It is just absolutely in our ears, in our eyes, and in our face about what Elijah is presenting, putting on the table. Well, and Scott, I've always thought that that was one of the major issues going on in the Old Testament is who will you take as your God? Uh, Jehovah is always saying, I am your God. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I have done all these miracles for you. And the people wander. What are your thoughts on that? I think that that is the question throughout the Old Testament. The Lord said in the beginning, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so that is the covenant. And if the people follow the God of the Old Testament, who is Jehovah, who is Jesus Christ, let us be clear about that then they will be blessed, prospered, be given protection, be given the promised land. All these blessings we've talked about in former podcasts will come to them as they are obedient. And the Lord gives them that opportunity over and over again, and they choose otherwise over and over again. And I guess from our armchair uh, view in this dispensation of the 21st century, and we're looking back here in about 850 BC now, um, it's easy for us to say, oh, those dimwits, I can't believe they're following after another idol god. They just go after him. But, you know, how does this apply to us? I mean, we have to be really careful that we don't think that we're perfect and that they were just so uh, unsteady as they were. And But I do have to say one thing. We've been in Israel a lot lately, and uh, uh, I've been thinking a lot about these idol gods and how how flimsy and how unreal they are. I mean, they get caught up in this Baal worship. And yet, as I said to a group just the other day, as we were overlooking uh, the city of Jerusalem, uh, I said, you know, none of these gods will be on the other side of the veil. When we go to the other world, there will be not one God, not one of these idol gods. They're all made up. They are fake. There's not one of them that's living, not one. And so uh, it's fascinating that they could be so enticed by these gods. Well, it seems to me like people try to hedge their bets. Like, I'll, I'll worship Jehovah, but I'll also, you know, keep the door open for Baal. I mean, it seems like they want to, to worship more than one thing, like an amalgam, so that they are safe. And yet, and yet the Lord makes it so clear that there is only one way. And I, this is one of the big messages of the Old Testament for me, is that there is only one God and him alone. And if you do not worship him, you will immediately run aground. You'll run against the hardness of reality because, because it is his way, because it is the only way. You know, if I can just throw, uh, throw something in on that, uh, Scott, when you mentioned about uh, the worshiping of these gods and, and Maureen, the idea of, of blending and hedging my bets and things. And 
I look at the beginning of, uh, I mean, to keep it in the Old Testament, but uh, truly th there is no originality in hell, it seems, where you find this in the Doctrine and Covenants as well, in the preface of the Doctrine and Covenants, section one uh, of the Doctrine and Covenants, where the Lord uh, said very specifically that uh, Israel, just all of us, have strayed from his ordinances, broken the everlasting covenants, this is verse 15 and 16. And then he says, we seek not the Lord to establish his righteousness, but every man walketh in his own way and after the image of his own God. And then he says, whose image is in the likeness of the world and whose substance is that of an idol. And it seems that what we struggle with is, is image making. But in the last days, it tends to be instead of finding strength and power from outside of ourselves, it's, it, it tends to be the image we struggle with is the image we see in the mirror, the false God we see in the mirror, uh, asserting my will uh, on the world, which in some senses uh, seems a little bit more devilish to me. Uh, because it, it, I, I'm trying to create and fashion the world in my own image to make everything fit my own subjective apprehension of what is going on around me. At least in the Old Testament, you'll find that there's powers outside of themselves that we have to somehow appease. But it's even more sinister today, it seems, where it's all coming from inside. Uh, and I, I think that's rather ominous, actually. And gratefully, we have a prophet like President Nelson who can actually bring us back to reality, it seems. And it's interesting, we call it authentic. I'm being authentic if I only use my own judgment as the judgment. And somehow this quest for authenticity, again, leads us right against the wall because it doesn't always lead us to the Lord. It leads us to our own image. So I think it's interesting that right at the start of these chapters, that Elijah uses his sealing power to seal the heavens so that it doesn't rain and that famine will come upon the land. And it reminds us of Nephi doing the same thing to his people because he said, what will bring them back to the Lord? And rather than having them perish by the sword, he said, you know, he, he will seal the heavens. So we have a parallel in the Book of Mormon. So this is what is happening with Elijah. And um, how does he get along through this famine? It's a fascinating story. It, it, right in verse one, it, he says, I will send no dew nor rain, but only according to my word. So it's, it's not just the rain itself, but it's the dew, which are extensions of Baal. And so he's fed miraculously, as, as the scripture says. He comes down to the, in verse four, thou shalt drink of the brook at Kareth, and uh, commanded the ravens to feed thee there. It's He's provided miraculously in this time of trial. And and I find it uh, he, almost echoing Nephi, the first Nephi in the Book of Mormon, where he, in verse five, he went and did, according to the word of the Lord. There's this pattern of go and do, and they went and did. You'll, you'll find in First Kings 17, this coming up, that there's an act of faith that is necessary. And once you act in faith, as Moroni said in Ether 12, you receive no witness until after the trial of, of your faith, as he went and did, and then he, he finds sustenance. And you also see this image of, of famines throughout the scriptures where, where Amos, uh, Amos chapter eight, where he says, I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the word of, of the Lord. And, and this image of famines is idiomatic for, uh, for apostasy, a, a time where, where the living waters are not present on the earth. And, and it's the consistent image throughout the Old Testament. Every time there's a famine, it's always there's a parallel going on with an apostate condition. Uh, you find that in the Doctrine and Covenants as well, where Joseph uh, likens rain and water to revelation that comes from the, uh, from, from, the war, uh, from the Lord. And when that ceases, 
it's because there's a state of famine and there's a lack of faith on the earth. You see those images in First Kings 17 that's happening. I think that what you said is so powerful, Patrick, and I, I think about this at the level of a prophet. Sometimes as we think of Elijah, we think of him as such a powerful prophet, and he's now brought famine to the land, and he's uh, he is this one who just is depicted almost like Moses. I mean, I think in Jewish tradition, Elijah is kind of number two in amazing power, and he's, he's this uh, very revered prophet. But then to put it into our own understanding as readers of the scriptures, he, uh, he says, I want you to go to Zarephath, and there you're going to go and find this widow woman that I've commanded to sustain me. And you know, when I first read this, I think, oh, she's going to be one of these uh, women who's well-prepared. She has a good store of food and everything. That's the one he's commanded. But instead, he commands this woman who has absolutely nothing. In fact, when he finds her, she's just picking up a couple of sticks, and she's going to go and, and make a little fire, and, and she has her last little bit of oil, and a little bit of meal, and she's going to make a cake for herself and her son, and then they're going to die. And this is the woman that's been commanded to sustain Elijah for the time of famine. And I, I love the personal nature of this because the Lord shows that at the prophet level and at the widow level, he can bless and show miracles. And it's, it's truly one of my favorite stories in the scriptures because here is this widow who uh, you know, she, she believes and she says, okay, I'll do it. And, and Elijah asks, like you were just saying, there's no witness until after the trial of your faith. And so Elijah says, well, first make a cake for me. I know you've just got enough for yourself and your son, but make it for me first and then make it for you and your son. And that was her first trial of her faith. And, but she didn't waver. She just did it. And, oh, what a scene. And then she sustains him through this famine with this cruise of oil that never gives out and the, and the grain that never lets up. I mean, it's just, it's an incredible story and a beautiful miracle. Well, and it's interesting to me that it should be this person who is at the lowest ebb. They only have one little handful of grain left. You'd think that if someone was going to make a sacrifice, surely it wouldn't be the person who had nothing who was then asked to sacrifice. What is the logic behind this in terms of divine principle, Patrick? What do you think is going on? Oh, the logic, that, that's an interesting use. Uh, 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 quite frankly, I don't know. <laughs> but, I, but this much I do know. Uh, it, it, this is a deeply touching and significant story uh, with this woman, who, as you say, who has lost everything. She has nothing. In fact, I, you look at the, even the word Zarephath, which is a word that means refinery. It's a place of, of uh, so who is being refined here? Is it the widow? Is it Elijah? Is the answer yes? Uh, is uh, who's being, and you think of Malachi, where uh, he will refine us and purchase us gold and silver. And, and um, it seems that that the Lord will feel after us and wrench our very heartstrings. He'll, it seems that um, in one sense to quote Lewis, C.S. Lewis, that is, you know, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And in another sense, uh, Lewis used this image where um, 
to those who say, I'm not afraid of God because I know God is good. Have they never been to a dentist? And it's, it's the same thing where I, I know God is good. Do I trust him even when times are not only harsh and destitute, but it just seems cruel. Do I trust him anyway? And that's where the refinement seems to happen. And, and as I looked in my own life where like Joseph at, at Liberty Jail, oh God, where art thou? Or, or, or Jesus on the cross, you know, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It seems when we've come, yes, that adage that God helps those who help themselves is uh, appropriate. I think the deeper, more significant Christian virtue is God helps those who come to the end of themselves. Once there's there's nothing there. I mean, that's the first beatitude, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, the empty, they've been completely emptied. That's the Greek word for, uh, is tokos, who is, is to be emptied of oneself, uh, to lose oneself, then you come to find yourself. And it seems these stories are illustrating that very idea. I, I mean, the audacity, even on one level of Elijah saying, give me first. Scott, you mentioned that, G give to me first. I mean, if I was Elijah, I, I wouldn't even dare say something like that. I mean, the audacity of the man, unless Elijah knows and senses something that is going on, that he, this is a way of, of enabling this woman to act in faith, whereby she can receive the blessings of the Lord that are waiting in the wings. It's just, it's a stunning, poignant, and deeply personal story. And when I read this, and then you read just a simple thing like this in verse 10, where, uh, well, he arose and went to Zarephath, and he came to the gate of the city and finds her there. And and then he says, fear not, in verse 13, to her, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first. And so verse 15, she went and did. It seems that the miracles are happening in process of time, a little here and a little there. As Nephi says, he gives unto the children of Ben line upon line, precept upon precept. And But lost in that doctrine, it seems that there's these intense wrenching of the heartstrings to give us a little little more and a little more and a little more it seems and um i am this woman i i think i think we can all relate to this woman at zarephath i love what joseph smith says about sacrifice we all know this quote really well a religion that does not require the sacrifice of all things never has power sufficient to produce the faith necessary unto life and salvation. So there is something about sacrifice, even when it seems impossible, that produces faith. And I think it defines you. You say, the Lord is so important to me, I truly will sacrifice anything I have to show my love and devotion and gratitude. And boy, that is, that is a, a big spiritual step for any of us but we see that sometimes the lord teaches us in extremes as he does here by showing us this very destitute about to starve woman to to teach us what is really important that somehow sacrifice really does unlock the blessings but one of those greatest blessings is our own faith we find out something about him and about us when we're willing to do that and i i think it defines us to ourselves as a believer, I am devoted disciple of Jesus Christ, and I always have been, and I always will be. And I mark that with my sacrifice. And I think there's just power in that. Maureen, I, you think of the word sacrifice, which really etymologically derives from the Latin, which is sacrificium, but it also, but the act of making something sacred. So now the definition, you know, what is sacred? What does it mean to be 
declared sacred. And you see this throughout the story of creation where, where God organizes and forms the earth to be a temple whereby God can enter in and take up his residence, take up his rule, where it, whereby it is made a fitting place for God to rule and, 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 and rest. That, that, that's the idea of, of rest. And you look at our lives, what is God doing in our lives to provide a place, an environment, a house uh, whereby God can enter into our lives and to take up his residence and his rule. And it seems that, uh, I, again, I, I just go back to the image of, of Malachi, where being refined in this gold and silver, where, where God has to remove everything that is not truly gold and silver. And that's a heating process, a smelting process, getting rid of the dross and, and that heat and that fire and that stirring process and that time removes everything that is not gold, everything that is not silver, and uh, the rock, the dirt, the grime that is there. It, it even calls attention to, uh, there's an old apocryphal story regarding Michelangelo and his, uh, the crafting of his 17-foot-tall, beautiful uh, statue of David there, which in Florence, where, uh, how did you create this? And it's a wonderful apocryphal story, whether it's true or not, is beside the point where he says, I just, I cut away everything that wasn't David. And it, it seems that that's what these trials are doing, where I, I think of Joseph Smith's statement, he says, where, where he says, I'm like a huge rough stone rolling down from a high mountain. And the only polishing I get is when some corner comes in contact with something else. And he says, striking with accelerated force against religious bigotry, priestcraft, lawyercraft, doctorcraft. And then he says, all hell knocking off a corner here and a corner there. And then he concludes, thus, I will become a smooth and polished shaft in the quiver of the almighty. And it's, it, it seems that the, the act of sacrifice is turning us into something better than what we could truly possibly hope for our, on our own. And it could be very difficult, very hot, very fiery. Um, but at the same time, the end process is beings who are truly the images of God. Two things come to mind, Patrick, as you were talking, and Maureen, as you were talking as well, I just keep thinking about uh, one is a, a woman in Missouri during the persecutions there in the uh, very most difficult times. This was about the far west period, and she wrote that I think that the Lord wanted the people as gold seven times refined. It wasn't just as gold refined, but as gold seven times refined. <laughs> And uh, that just keeps coming to my mind that, you know, these stories are to remind us that we came to mortality, not just to have it easy and to have comfort and to just, uh, you know, make our way along as easy as possible and then come back into the presence of God. He does want to refine us and he will refine us. And then I was thinking about the the people on Zion's camp march, you know, there's 207 women or 207 men and, and nine, I think women and 11 children. And, and they're going along. And at the end, they're disbanded. They don't have a war. They're kind of, some of them are upset. And Joseph said, some of you are angry with me because you did not fight in Missouri, but let me tell you, God did not want you to fight. He could not organize his kingdom with 12 men to open the gospel door to the nations of the earth and with 70 men under their direction to follow in their tracks, unless he took them from a body of men who had offered their lives and who had made as great a sacrifice as did Abraham. Now the Lord has got his 12 and his 70. And I, 
you know, nine of the 12 came out of Zion's Camp March and 70 of the 70 came out of Zion's Camp March. And, and that just, uh, it just moves me that the Lord, he will do his work upon us and he will refine us. And here we see in this story with this humble widow that he's doing the same thing with her as he does with us and with Elijah. And it's so interesting to me that she does receive not only the blessing of having enough food and grain, her oil doesn't run out and her grain doesn't run out, but later when her son dies, he is raised from the dead by Elijah. And this comes to a person who's already defined I will give my all to the Lord. And so the Lord then is free to give this incredible miracle to her. Now, going on from there, I think it's really fascinating that when the Savior went back to Nazareth and was speaking in the synagogue, that he and he really announced to his fellow residents that he'd grown up with in Nazareth. They wanted to hear and see what had been happening in other places because they'd heard all these miracles that he'd done. That then he refers to this widow, this very story. Um, and he says, verily, I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, meaning Elijah, when the heaven was shut up, was shut up three years and six months when great famine was throughout the land, but unto none of them was Elias, Elijah, sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. So the Lord even points out this story. And why do you think he pointed out this story at this critical moment when he's telling the people in his own hometown that a prophet isn't accepted in his own country? Well, yeah, that's a fascinating reference, because on one level, it could be considered very offensive uh, to them. Uh, this woman who, was, who could be considered a Gentile woman, a Phoenician woman uh, at Zarephath, not only is she a Phoenician Gentile, she's, uh, but she's a widow. In addition to that, she's poor. What can she possibly offer that, that the Pharisees and the scribes and every, those who are of Israel do not already have? And and. I, I, it, I think one of the best answers that resonate with my soul come right out of the Book of Mormon, where, where the Lord says right after the destructions, right before he makes his appearance to the Nephites, he says, I will, the only thing I want from you now is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a woman of Samaria in John chapter four, where a Samaritan woman who, remember, who has had uh, five men that she's lived with, a, a sixth man who is uh, her husband and and, um, and, and it's just, and she's a destitute woman also, but yet the Lord works his wonders in her. The Lord finds a woman of Zarephath who is the most unlikely of, of individuals as far as the scribes and the Pharisees are concerned, but she demonstrates brokenness, contrition, openness. And it's amazing what the, war, uh, what the Lord can do through miracles through people who just have uh, the heart and a willing mind. I, I find great resonance with what the Lord said to the Nephites right there. You know, I want to take us up to the top of Mount Carmel now for a minute, uh, because this Elijah and Patrick, you mentioned his his very name means my my God is Jehovah, and he carried this name his whole life, and he lived his life with that absolute knowledge. And now in this northern kingdom, the people have turned to Baal worship, and they're just they're just in a world of hurt, and he's 
he and they, 450 priests or prophets that sometimes refer to of Baal, are going to have a showdown on top of Mount Carmel. And we go there often, Maureen and I do, and I love being up there. Maureen teaches this powerful discourse up on top of Mount Carmel, but this showdown of these of these priests, uh, I mean, sometimes Baal is, is referred to as the fire god. And so they're going to try to, I mean, Elijah sets this up so wonderfully to this fire god who really doesn't exist, but he, you know, he says, okay, let's just, let's just do this. Make this altar and lay out your bullock and put everything down and then just call down fire from heaven to uh, this. And, and then uh, we'll see who is God. And it's, it's not your standard approach. Usually we just go by faith, <laughs> but in this case, it's not going to be by faith. It's going to be by, by works, by showing this powerful, powerful sign to all these people. And uh, I just kind of want to hear your two uh, interactions about this, this scene. This to me is such an interesting showdown between the true God and Baal, who is this interloper, who this God who can do nothing because he, he's an idol. But I think about that moment. I mean, they've been without rain now for three plus years. There is famine in the land. And so the question is, who is God? And this is the moment. This is a, this is like, you do your best and we'll do ours. And I try to think about these 450 priests plus 400 priests of the grove. You know, so there were a lot of people there. And I wonder about uh, the pomp, the circumstance of having all those, all those priests there. They must've looked so mighty. They have the, the backing of the king and the queen Ahab and Jezebel. And there's Elijah. One man, my, my God is Jehovah, his name means. There's one man against all of this. But of course, we know it's way more than one man because he has God with him. But what an incredible moment. And he says to the people, how long halt ye between two opinions? That is a question that we all have to ask ourselves. At what point do we say, this is real, God is real, I give, I give everything I have to him because I see that everything else in this world is a shoddy substitute. So Elijah is asking this amazing question, and, and then there will be this incredible moment. So you want to talk about that, Patrick? Well, Maureen, I just absolutely love hearing you. Uh, you've, you've enraptured me in the story. I, I, I love this. Uh, in fact, you reference that uh, the question he asked in verse twenty-one: "How long hunt you between two opinions?" I mean, there's a you know perhaps a, a alternate translation of it uh, from the Hebrew would be: "How long will you keep hopping between the two boughs?" The image of a of a bird who can't decide which which branch I'm going to light upon, and uh, they just keep going again. James one eight: "You know, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways," but. Elijah, Eliyahu, remember, who, who Jehovah is my God, my God is Jehovah, um, does everything he can to put it into their camp. Mount Carmel, this, the vineyard of God, the garden of God is really what this mountain means. It's a mountain range, actually. And um, it's sacred to the worshipers of, of Baal. So they have the home court advantage. Uh, not only that, 
he sets it up so that fire consumes or lightning is the uh, is the idea the motif here that's being used here the manifestation of baal's power we'll even let your god manifest himself the way he's allegedly can man manifest himself in his sacred precinct not only that let's get all the priests every every but everyone who is someone gathered together on your sacred mountain there's nothing else he could do to set this up that Baal would actually uh, has some sort of a disadvantage. And then you simply have a small and simple thing to use Alma's language here in the, in the form of, uh, of Elijah. And then he, and then they said about, now I find the, the timing on this fascinating. And, and as you, Hosea 12 verse uh, 10, very specifically tells us that the Lord's servants, his prophets, by the ministry of their very lives are types and shadows, uh, similitudes, and uh, similitudes, of, and I would say, of the only begotten himself. And you'll see this, this three and a half year ministry, the time of apostasy. You can see the ministry of the Lord everywhere through this. And maybe really quickly before we get into that story, you can also see, even by the numbers, that the, uh, the story echoes the story of Gideon from Judges chapter 7. Even by the very numbers themselves, when he gets down to just 300 core individuals who are going to battle the Midianites here. And, and when you have by Judges chapter 8, uh, those numbers, 125,000 slain versus, versus the 300, those numbers work out to be identical to what's going on here at, at Mount Carmel. In fact, even uh, Gideon's other name is, is, uh, is Jerubabal, uh, which is uh, as Gideon destroyed Baal worship in, in the time of the judges through miraculous means. So Elijah will do so here as well. It seems to be the constant thing that keeps coming up and the Lord uses small and simple servants to do his bidding. So uh, yeah, take a look at some of the details here. I find it just interesting where he takes the bullock, you dress it and he does it uh, very specifically. Uh, you dress it first and they took the bullock in verse 26, which is given, they dressed it, called the name of Baal from morning. That would be the time of the morning sacrifice until noon. You'll, you'll even see a time frame echoing the time of crucifixion here in the New Testament, saying, oh, Baal, hear us, but there was no voice nor any that answered, and that's the fruit of false gods. False gods, they cannot deliver. But then Elijah mocked them in verse 27, cry aloud for he is God, either he is talking or he is pursuing, pursuing on a journey somewhere. In fact, the word of pursuing is, is more of a euphemism, is he out doing his business, as we would say? Uh, to use another euphemism, or is he on a journey per adventure? He is sleeping and must be awake. Verse 28, they even went to ritual cutting, the idea of cutting the flesh uh, to provoke their God to worship. And that's, uh, that's evidence of Baal worship from the ancient Phoenicians that, that this is a way to garner a response from Baal, uh, to, to abuse the body or the temple of God itself to, to elicit a response. And not even that's working. Verse 29, there's neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regard it. Isn't that the fruit of false God worship? Is there's no one to answer. So then Elijah's, Elijah's turn to come up and he takes 12 stones in verse 31. In fact, he even tells you, the writer of Kings even tells you, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. I absolutely love that image. Uh, according to Exodus, that when we make altars, they are to be unhewn stones. You make stones that, that, that chisels have not touched. And because God is going to make our, our, the, the stone of Israel, the rock of our redeemer, our foundation. And Israel is to be the foundation here because we come in the name of the Lord and, and he establishes or rather restores this altar that had likely been destroyed by Jezebel's servants. And then uh, the Lord came saying, Israel shall be thy name. 
he even makes a trench around the altar uh, as great as two measures of sea. That's half a bushel of grain. He just deep trenches around this thing, pour barrels of water upon this thing. So, so he sets this up in a way that, that the advantage is clearly with worshipers of Baal and the disadvantage is with, is with Elijah, the God of Israel. And yet do it a second time, do it a third time. You see this, this the idea of three uh, coming up, the, the, the Godhead. You'll see that when Elijah restores uh, the widow of Zarephath's son, where he stretches himself across the boy three times, this idea of the Godhead is being invoked here. And, uh, and sure enough, the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice in verse 36, Eliahu comes near and the God of Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known. This day thou art God in Israel and Jehovah is my God. And then hear me, O Lord, hear me. Verse 37, he can almost evokes a temple imagery when we dedicate our temples even. Uh, oh, hear, oh, hear. This is how the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple even concludes here. So this is temple imagery being invoked here. Then verse 38, the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice. The wood, the stones, and the dust. And that's an incredible image of dust. As Adam was created from the dust, dust is an idiomatic expression for mortality in the scriptures. We are dust. You learn that Psalm 103. Licks up everything and all everything is consumed. And, and not only does this establish uh, that Jehovah is God, but I think that is an image of what God is trying to do to us and with us that he's going to consume everything and everything that we lay upon this altar, take it to himself and establish a new temple where, where we become the temple of God and God himself reigns within us. That's the idea of Emmanuel, God with us, but God is now within us. And you can see this uh, restoration of, of Yahweh again through this battle of the folly of the false gods and the restoration of the true God and not just the true God of Israel, but the true God of Israel within me. I just think it is just a powerful story evoking these beautiful images. And then at the end, of course, with all of this show of power and uh, what a humbling thing this was. And I, I love how you set this up. Well, how the Lord set it up, but how you described the setup of the home court advantage. And, uh, and Elijah is just one man but of course, Maureen said he's not one man, he's with God. And I just, I just love how the Lord not only comes through, but then even the people themselves fall on their faces and they say, the Lord, he is the God, the Lord, he is the God. They say it twice. And then Elijah does this thing. He says, okay, now take all the prophets of Baal and slay them. So they're all slain. And right at the moment that they're slain, he then says to the king, get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. And so this, this brings about the end of the, of the three and a half years of famine that has been brought on because of the unfaithfulness of the people and because of the word of Elijah himself. And they, they even say, now go and look in the heavens. And they say, just go seven times and look, keep looking, keep looking, keep looking. And then off in the West, there is this little, little black cloud that's the size of a man's fist. And then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Then the whole sky is clothed in these clouds that are full of rain and it begins to rain. And what a, what a symbol 
of the, the living water that the Lord is willing to give to those who turn to him with all their hearts. Hey, Scott, let me ask you a question on that, if that's all right. Uh, and Maureen, Scott, Maureen, you mentioned the idea of the cloud, you know, like the size of a man's hand, and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and you typically hear people talk about because it was so far out over the Mediterranean or whatever, and it's, it's getting closer and closer. But I see, uh, do you think there's a correlation here with, e, with Ezekiel's vision of the temple in Ezekiel 47, where the waters usher, uh, gush out uh, of the right side of the altar, and uh, they're very shallow in the beginning, and then it's up to the knees, and then it goes up to the ankles, or excuse me, knees, and then up to the breast and the shoulders, and then, oh, they're overflowing wherever they come. I don't know about, I mean, tell me your thoughts on this. I, I see a very similar image with the temple and living waters, that it's a, it's an expression of it comes in the beginning uh, subtly, and then it builds and builds, and, and then it's just a veritable deluge. What, what, what's your thought on that? Oh, I think the same thing. I think about the temple that will be built in Jerusalem, that will yet be built in Jerusalem, and when water will flow out from under the temple and will heal the waters of the Dead Sea, I think it's all the same kind of thing, this water that comes out, this I mean, the Lord has this living water from the smallest symbol of the woman at the well in John chapter four to this whole macrocosm of healing the Dead Sea and of and the Dead Sea really is all the people. It's not just the Dead Sea down at 1300 feet below sea level. It's it's all those who are dead that they will be healed, you know. Well the dead people, you know. And it's, it's interesting, too, that um, you have to notice when something starts out subtly and small uh, and pay attention and have faith that it will grow to this deluge that is that is promised because it would be easy to say, well, there's a cloud on the horizon, but that's just going to wisp away, you know. You really do have to hold on to the gifts and the promises that you get from the Lord um, even when you don't see him every day, it's because you don't have eyes to see, but, but when we don't, we still hold on until that we are in that deluge of spirit and miracle and transformed into a very different kind of life. I think that's a, an interesting idea. Do you mind if I just throw one more thing on that real quick? I, I just love what you did. You said something, Scott, and then Maureen, you picked up on it. It, it. it reminds me, let me find this. It's in Exodus, actually. We're talking about famines. We're talking about water. And and I go back to the story of uh, of the Exodus here on this, where um, where the children of Israel are wandering and they can't, and they, they need water desperately. And they, they eventually come, you know, the waters of Mara and they cast a tree into the water and they're healed miraculously. And then eventually they come to a place which is called Elim. And it says, because there are three square and 10 palm trees there at 12 wells of water. And it's, it reminds me of the idea of whether we're in the desert or we're in the famine, that, that the palm trees, the 70 are signs of where water can be found. But then the, the palms do not give the water. You, you get, they're, they're the signs that water is present. It's like, like, like the 70 today. But when you go to where they're at, you find the 12 wells. And, and, and the wells do not, do not nourish you. It's what comes from within the wells that, nour that nourish you, bring you the living waters. And so the children of Israel draw this living water out of the 12. And that's what enables them to survive their wilderness wanderings. And you can see uh, echoes in our day of, of what comes from the quorum of the 12, first presidency of the quorum of the 12, what they offer is living water in this, this desert that we are in. And you see this echoed in the story of Elijah here also with a small cloud and eventually becomes a deluge. And 
that which is of God is light, and he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light, and that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. And that's section 50 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 24. And it's whether it's water or whether it's light, it seems to come line upon line, precept upon precept. But an active faith in learning to come to the end of oneself seems to be a fundamental truth here. That's really a beautiful, a beautiful idea. Now, you would think with this triumph that all would be well, but Jezebel's not happy. And Elijah's life is endangered. Isn't that amazing? You'd think that someone would say, oh, I can see Jehovah is God. But Jezebel digs in to where she is. And Elijah really has, has to escape. He takes, a, he takes a journey. And in fact, he goes all the way to Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. And uh, he has really a significant experience there. One that I really always um, loved. First of all, we can see for a moment his discouragement as a prophet. He says he went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take away my life for I'm not better than my father's. I mean, this is a moment of humanity that you see that is not easy, even if you're Elijah, to fight against such a, evil as he was fighting against. And it reminds me of what we see in 2 Nephi 33, uh, verse 3 with Nephi. He says, I, Nephi, have written what I've written, and I esteem it as of great worth, and especially unto my people, for I pray continually for them by day, and mine eyes water my pillow by night because of them. And I cry unto my God in faith, and I know that he will hear my cry. But this is real personal effort and grieving and working um, to try and save and spare God's people and bring them back to him. But it, it, it has a cost. I mean, it, it's a sacrifice for Elijah. It's a sacrifice for Nephi. It is, it is a real thing. And I think we see that in our own apostles who, when they are called, they work until the day they die. There is, there is not much time off, I remember that President Hinckley died on a Sunday and he was in his office four days before on Thursday and he could barely make it to the door. That was the last time he came in. So he had Friday and Saturday and died on Sunday. So there is this sense that I will give my all for this work and it really is a personal cost, even, even for profits. And Maureen, even at this point when he's now gone up to Horeb, and I love what the Lord says. He said, he came hither to a cave. This isn't the Lord yet, but he came hither to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said unto him, what doest thou here, Elijah? You know, what are you doing here? And he's, Elijah is tired. He's wondering if his mission is of worth. And he said, he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant thrown down thine altars and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And then he shows them this wonderful thing. He says, he said, the Lord said, go forth and stand upon the Mount before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind. And by the way, we're in chapter 19 of first Kings verse 11. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind 
rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And this is such an amazing message for each of us that we're not looking for the big things to bring about conversion. We're not looking for those big things to prove that God is there. Uh, he speaks to us with that still small voice. And it's, it's the thing that penetrates into the deepest depths of our hearts and our souls. Boy, you two have a way of just evoking imagery in my mind. I, Maureen, when you were speaking, my heart was just breaking when I, I think of, um, as a parent, as a teacher, sometimes those days that come along, you know, what am I doing? How did it come to this? Uh, or you walk out of cla a classroom of having taught seminary and, and, or lots of youth and, and half of them are on phones and things like this. And it's an affront to my personal pride. And I should just go back to just delivering pizzas like I used to, you know, um, and then Scott, what you were saying about how uh, this story about chapter 19, about the Lord was not in the wind and the fire and by how you were telling it, Scott, it, it, there's an insight that hit me. I, I hadn't considered before, which is, it was almost like the storm was indicative and as a type for what was going on in Elijah's own soul. And because Elijah, there's lots of fire and earthquake going on and this, and, and that's where you're at right now. But now there's a time of, of where there's stillness, quiet. In fact, he says it was a still, small voice. Uh, in fact, the Hebrew for still right there is, is better translated as, as like a whisper. And um, I, I think of the, um, the idea of wind or ruach in Hebrew, which is the, the breath of God that can only be felt and experienced if, if your soul is in a state of calmness. Uh, you, you read the Psalms, Psalm 1, very specifically, that sitting by a tree, by the rivers of water, where, where you're choosing to put your place, you put yourself into a place where you can feel and recognize God's spirit that is, um, that is still and small. In fact, I, when you were saying that, Scott, also, I, I, I grabbed my book of Mormon here, and when you were, because you reminded me of this passage from Helaman 5, verse 30, where dealing with the story of Nephi and Lehi and the, the coming down of the, of the prison walls and the turbulence and the smoke and everything that was there. And then the people heard a voice, this is verse 30 in Helaman 5, that it was not a voice of thunder, neither was it a voice of a great tumultuous noise, but behold, it was a still voice of perfect mildness as if it had been a whisper, there's that whisper, that stillness, and it appears to me to, even to the very soul. I, it, it, it caused attention to my soul with President Nelson, where that often uh, quoted statement from President Nelson and from General Conference, where he says that joy has very little to do with the circumstance of our lives, but more to do with the focus of our lives, that, that there's a choice that we can make that to put ourselves in environments is the Doctrine Covenant says, section 87, to stand ye in holy places and be not moved and wait upon the Lord. And, and by waiting that you're acting in faith, that, that the Lord will manifest his spirit, his whisper in his own time and in his own way. But your task is to, is to move forward with faith. And I, 
I, I'm personally encouraged by your retelling of this story, Scott and Murray. And so thank you. That's a blessing to my life. I think it's so interesting. Um, Elder Bednar talking about revelation in, in the context of this, these verses we've just looked at, because he said, we often make it hard on ourselves to receive personal revelation. Our covenant promises that as we honor our covenants, we may have always have the Holy Ghost to be our constant companion. But we talk about it and we treat it as if hearing the voice of the Lord through his spirit is the rare event. That just strikes me as a little curious. It's like we have to follow these four steps. Everywhere we turn, we get formulas, we get checklists. Do these four things and the Holy Ghost is going to speak to you and you're going to hear it. And I go, wait a minute, he says, we shouldn't be trying to recognize it when it comes. We should be recognizing what happens that causes it to leave. Because we as covenant people have been given the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so we should assume that if we are doing our very best to live our covenants, that what we are feeling and what is flowing through us day by day is that still small voice and that we're being guided by revelation and that wrenching of thinking, I have to have something dramatic. I have to have a wind. I have to have a fire. I have to have something that is really so clear that it can't be denied um, is counterproductive because it makes us not value what we have day in and day out, which is the sweetness of the spirit that talks to us and guides us and helps us. And so I think these verses that we just read have always been among my very favorite because it's so counterproductive to hope for something dramatic when the Lord is already giving us the most precious gift we could already have. <laughs> that is a... Um... It's a beautiful rendition. In fact, your reading of Elder Bednar's statement is actually my very favorite description of the problem that we have of, of the Holy Ghost. When he said that to a group of Seminary Institute teachers, it just resonated with me. They're always looking for these moments of, 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 of beams of light that come through the clouds every now and again. And, and Elder Bednar restored the true doctrine of the gift of the Holy Ghost, that, it may always, that he may always be with us, that he's always with us. Uh, to me, that just resonates as true. And I, I uh, as I consider this story, um, I can think of no other name that I would rather, that, that is a description of, the, of, of my walk in Christian discipleship than Elijah, Eliyahu. Jehovah is my God. And I think of my baptismal covenant where, where I give up my name. I give up uh, my actions, my thoughts and everything else. And I, as Paul says, I die as to self. This is Romans chapter six. I, I'm crucified. And then I'm reborn with a new name, with a new life, with even a new name, even the name of Jesus Christ. And, and whereby Jehovah now is my God. And what I do, what I say, uh, who I am, it ought to be a reflection of that verity that Jehovah is true. My God, I, I think of, of Elijah as probably the greatest example of this in the Old Testament. And then you see that's, that's truly his name is what my baptismal covenant is all about. That's all for today. We have just been so happy to be with you today and to have our special guest, Patrick Dane, with us today. We've appreciated his insights and hope that you have felt a wonderful feeling today as we've studied together. Next week, the lesson will be covering 2 Kings chapters 2 through 7 with the title, There is a Prophet in Israel. As always, we're grateful to Paul Cardall 
for the music which accompanies this podcast. And we're grateful to our producer, Michaela Proctor Hutchins. Have a wonderful week and see you next time. Mm-hmm.